hawks are supposed to appreciate hard power. They're supposed to, to really take it seriously. And we all know the objective evidence is that we are in a bad, bad way in Taiwan. They might want to spend double on defense, but we haven't been, I mean, you haven't been doing that for 10 plus years, doing the things that they think are necessary. Okay, keep making the arguments for doubling defense budget. I personally don't agree, but like keep making those arguments. But right now we have to live in reality if we're actually supposed to observe America's interests. Mm -hmm. So like they are the people, like Elon Omar, like AOC, whatever, like what do you expect, right? But like we expect the neocons and the hard power people to actually take this stuff seriously and they're not. And they're and they're peacocking around about, you know, Ukraine and Iran. And it's like, that's not serious, man. This is for real. Like mm -hmm. lots of people are going to die mm -hmm. and like l you're supposed to take this seriously. So what gives? Back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And our extremely repetitive intro continues <laughs> once again. Uh, we have a fantastic episode for you guys today. We had a ton of fun taping it. We had on Bridge Colby. We'll talk about him in a minute. But as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find information about all of our live programs, everything that we have cooking. Uh, we are constantly doing new stuff, and we're very blessed to, to be able to to do that. Um, uh, right now, we're kind of unwinding a little bit from the summer, um, but we're, we're about to dive right back into it with some of our fall, winter, and certainly preparing for the new year where there is going to be quite a bit of change in Washington, and we want to be as responsible for it and helping make it happen as humanly possible. Uh, today, we had on Bridge Colby, who uh, you guys might know as the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, which is this fantastic new think tank and policy organization that's really mostly focused on a sustained era of great power competition. He's the author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, um, and it has been selected by The Wall Street Journal as one of the top 10 books of 2021, and I would agree. Uh, he was the uh, director of the defense program at the Center for New American Security from 2018 to 2019, and before that, he was the deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy and force development from 2017 to 2018. Uh, in that role, he led the planning guidance uh, and the drafting of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which shifted uh, the department. Department of Defense's focus to the challenges the United States military faces by China, and uh, and he is, I would say, the foremost guy in uh, on the right um, talking about the China issue today. I would say there's a couple of people that we really admire, people like himself, Michael Anton, David Goldman, and a few others. But um, he, I would say, takes uh, the hawkish take on China intra what we see as our tent. Uh, we think he's an exceptionally brilliant man who, who really made a compelling argument. I'm I'm rethinking some of the things that I've thought about this China issue just by virtue of the conversation we had with him. He's fantastic. He got super amped during the episode. It was a great time. And we always love it when our thesis that we want every guest in person uh, is proven correct because you don't get people to get as excited and amped up on a Zoom episode. Um, he's a fun guy. Uh, he's a smart guy. Nick, what did you think about that? You know, you said something during the episode today about how uh, on the China question, you're always most convinced by the person you last talked to. And I think, <laughs> especially with Bridges' enthusiasm, it's so true. Uh, it, it it certainly caused me to, you know, you. I think I've heard a lot of people talk about his position in a in a negative or a derogatory way that you kind of come into the episode with a with a negative view of it and then you hear him talk about it and you're like, "Well, that sounds uh 
reasonable uh, and like <laughs> well you know, it's, not it's, terrible. it's so clear that a lot of coverage about bridge and I've, I've gotten a chance to go through a lot of his book and a it's lot, from like both sides yeah. by the way it's like not it's not like a particular person or like group it's like he was saying you know being the middle of the road you become the road well and, and, and people it's so clear that a lot of his critics don't actually listen to the words he says like he, he mm. they, they, they impute motive and even entire policy perspectives that he just doesn't have and he he disputes a lot of them in this episode well yeah like a good example of it is and i i don't want to spoil the episode too much but like my perception of hearing other people talk about him as it relates to the taiwan issue is like oh he's just got like a hard on for defending Taiwan, you know, like that's <laughs> like that's his thing. And to hear him actually talk about it, it's it's really the reverse that he cares about mm-hmm. American security and American uh, power and the defense of our nation so much that he's like, well, we'll fight for these people who won't even fight for themselves yeah. to, to, you know, preserve our security. You know, in so. addition to that, a couple of the reasons to really like him is that he's someone who didn't come up through the traditional foreign policy credentialing space, but has yeah. been a policy entrepreneur in that area. I mean, that's something that, you know, we dream for the kids that we're helping bring up their American moment, you know, 10 years down the line that they'll follow a very similar path or 20 years down the line, what have you. Um, he's actually younger than, or he's older than he looks, a pretty, pretty youthful guy. Yeah, um, I should have asked him about his skincare routine. <laughs> that that would have been terrible. If no. he wears a sun hat or yeah. like what the deal is. <laughs> Um, that would have been quite lame. Um, but no, he's he's fantastic. Um, real autodidact, fun guy to talk to. Um, have had the privilege of getting to know him a little bit over the past few months, hoping to do so more. We'll go now to Bridge Colby. Bridge, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great to be on with you guys. We've been really excited to do this for quite some time. You have a fantastic new book out and everything, but I want to go back. How did Bridge Colby get to the point where he is today, uh, where you make all the right people angry? Uh, tell us how you got interested in foreign policy, career background. What's the tale? Well, it's actually funny that you made that joke. It's great, great to be on with you guys. And I was going to joke that it goes back to childhood. But actually, when you when you laid out the, the whole question, it, it, it actually kind of is in the sense <laughs> that I was always um, always uh, a little bit contrarian, I think. But I, I, I kind of liked debate, but I, I always wanted to have try to get to the right answer and and kind of, you know, poke the system a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, even in school and so forth. And so that maybe maybe it does go back to my childhood. But but in all seriousness, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been interested in in foreign policy, national security, this kind of stuff since I mean, since a young age, probably misspent youth. Um, but then I, you know, came down to Washington uh, after college about 20 years ago, and I worked in the government for a few years, um, kind of as like a junior bureaucrat sort of staff type, nothing particularly glorious or distinguished, but gave me- Bush administration, of, political yeah. or career track? Uh, I was initially uh, political. I got a political job, which was um, uh, not, not uh, with all due respect to my, my, my mentor, helped me get it. Uh, it. It was not the most engaging, but I, I actually moved into the career- or sort of non-political element because I got more involved into the intelligence reform stuff following the Iraq uh, debacle, you know, over the Iraq WMD intelligence. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to overstate it, but I was also pretty out of sorts with the ascendant, you know, political view at the time, which was kind of peak neoconservatism. Um, but, uh, you know, was working there. And then I, I uh, decided to go to law school think because I'd thought about going into the career service, but it was pretty clear to me by that point that I was more, you know, given my the personality I just talked about, was more interested in kind of like, um, you know, the conceptual advocacy causing trouble, frankly, kind of policy wise. So I thought maybe I'd go in and out as like a lawyer in the sort of old, old school model. Um, so I went to law school 
became very clear to me very, very quickly that I was not cut out to be a good lawyer. My main <laughs> legal advice is don't take any legal advice from me. In fact, I'm not even barred, uh, which is probably good for the American people. Um, Did you ever take the bar? I never took the bar. Awesome. So now you never know if you never know if I would have failed or yeah. not, you know, so. Um, but but actually during law school, I used my time, at least from my point of view, to good effect. I did a lot of deep reading. I'm kind of an autodidact. Um, you know, I mean, I had a lot of schooling, a lot of learning, but I, I'm in a sense, I'm a bit of an autodidact. So I spent a lot of time reading like political economy and deterrence theory during law school. And I worked part time on a couple of things for the Rand Corporation. Also, there was a congressional commission on the nuclear weapons posture of the country that I worked on. Then I got a gig, uh, courtesy of, of my law school, as like a this kind of special uh, program the government has to work on the arms control negotiations with the Russians. So I did that for a year, kind of working on that deterrent stuff. And then, you know, being- What year would that have been? That was 2009, 2010. So when we were trying to do a Russia reset. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, and I worked on the New START negotiations. So, which, you know, I personally, I think was was worth it. Uh or valuable at the time, a sort of different set of circumstances now. But then I left, uh, you know, being a Republican and I worked at think tanks for, I guess, the next, geez, like almost seven years. And then I went into the uh, Trump Pentagon uh, under Mattis in sort of first part of 17. And then I left for kind of more sort of parochial uh, or sort of uh, personal reasons in 18. And then I briefly went back to the old think tank I'd been at uh, called the Center for New American Security. And then in 2019, I co-founded this marathon initiative with my great friend and, and partner, Wes Mitchell, uh, which is, you know, kind of a platform to be able to do the kinds of things that you were you were talking about where I'm trying to push the agenda and hopefully the right way in the American people's interest. Very cool. Uh the foreign policy of the United States has in some ways changed, in some ways stayed the same, but it certainly uh, had a lot of, you know, it, impetuses to to change over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and I'd kind of like to get your perspective on each of those time periods over the course of your career. Um, I know that uh, uh, through another podcast I listened to with Ross Douthat, who uh, was one of your uh, college roommates, that uh, you had a dissident perspective, at least vis-a-vis -vis the right, on the Iraq war at the time it was happening. How were you thinking about the Iraq war at the time? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I... I you know, it's interesting. Initially, when I was like in high school, I'd identified as a like a Democrat or even a social Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I had some like archaic idea of the Democratic Party. I mean, this was in the 1990s, so it was like a universe away. But you could still, the sort of Daniel Patrick Moynihan pre-neoconservative Democratic Party was still, I mean, there were still like little hints of it. So I was, you know, but by the time I got to college, I became uh uh, conservative, or as Ross, I think, put it at one point, severely conservative. Uh, so I, you know, since then I've, I've you, you know, and Mitt Romney, yeah, uh, yeah, not uh, slightly different views, but, but yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, but but already I had I had kind of had a realist point of view on the foreign policy stuff going back even into high school in the '90s. I remember being against the Kosovo intervention in 1999, which was you know this sort of very moralistic kind of, I mean, I think the original, not to get too technical and like, I'm not super expert on it, but like the original Yugoslav intervention was a little more limited. I mean, Kosovo was like creating a new country, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I already had that that mindset. And the, the funny thing is, I mean, I actually interned on the Bush campaign in 1999. This is like long forgotten, but Bush was running on the basis of a more humble foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And like this sort of Cheney and those guys in those days were these sort of sober kind of, you know, they weren't that different from the way we think of like Brent Scowcroft now. And so it was like a much different 
mindset. And so I thought that was pretty simpatico. But after 9-11, that really, really changed. And it, you know, it, I mean, I think the only thing you could call it would be hubris emerged uh, after after 9-11. It was a very disorienting experience because I like knew I was a conservative, right? Like no question um, on the domestic things and just on the basic way of looking at the world. And yet I was completely out of sorts with the ascent of view, which I always felt was fundamentally not conservative. And in fact, like, I mean, I was briefly in Iraq uh, in 2003 as a civilian. I mean, again, nothing distinguished, but it was interesting to be there because it was full evidence to me that this was not some like Halliburton plot, as far as I could tell, but it was actually like true believing progressivism in action. I mean, that's that was what was actually informing. It was like, I remember this guy who was, I think, the year ahead of me in college who was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal as being like the guy who was going to set up the Iraqi stock exchange. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I mean, I'm not the world's expert, but like I thought neoconservatism was about how social change is hard and institutions are like difficult to sustain. And it's like, oh, apparently we're just going to like march into this country and create a stock exchange. Yeah. And that was the mindset. So it was very disorienting. So so I'm, you know, I'm envious of, of younger conservatives who are growing up with all the problems that we have. And society is a lot worse in most ways, it seems to me. I don't know, not in every way, but like in a lot of ways. But at least it, the conservative movement is much more interesting and dynamic and open uh, and, and more on track than it was when I was, uh, you know, younger. What's your theory of how that mindset change happened because I, I do think getting the chronology with these things is important. And the idea that, you know, the Cheneys and the Bushes were, you know, rubbing their fingers together with glee at the thought of starting a bunch of world wars, like that's that's it's not quite accurate, at least based on all of their public presence in the in the late nineties. How does someone go from running on a sober foreign policy in 1999 to giving the second inaugural? Like, how does that happen in the entire apparatus around George W. Bush? Yeah. Well, there's a personal answer and there's a systemic answer. I mean, I think in the systemic terms, um, you know, again, I'm a realist, so I look at structure. And I think that's, I think realism and conservatism are basically cognate. They're not exactly the same, but they're quite similar. Um, but when constraints are loosened, behavior tends to become less less inhibited, but also probably less responsible, less rational. I mean, that's kind of like the point of a lot of, I think, domestic conservative social policy is like, look, people are better off when they have, you know, guardrails or like kind of, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that's what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. People just got like, hey, why not? You know, like that was the attitude. It was like, yeah, Bridge is saying these like things, but that's so remote. Meantime, people, let's help people. You know, let's use this amazing military. I mean, this is, I call it the Albright uh, effect, but like her famous or infamous to me, uh, comment to Colin Powell. Colin Powell was like saying, we can't use the military to intervene in Yugoslavia. And she was like, why do we have this amazing military if we can't use it? And it's like, that. I mean, it's kind of a hard question to push back on because like there didn't seem to be any downside, yeah. you know? So that was part of it. I also think, people like heavily overlearned one element of of the Reagan legacy. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think if you know, I'm not the world's expert on Reagan, but if you go back to Reagan, I mean, we we tend to hear a lot of this sort of, you know, sunny, sh shiny, but Reagan was like pretty tough. He was like pretty conservative. He was very controversial at the time. Like we just, they've kind of buried a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But like this, you know, sort of idea that if you just put your mind to it, we can take down the Soviets just through like staring them down over the Berlin Wall. And like, there was an element of that, but it was also backed by like millions of soldiers, nuclear weapons, and economic, a ruthless economic policy to collapse the Soviet economy, all this kind of thing. But 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 the guys who were like Wolfowitz, Crystal, the kind of intellectual leaders 
of this view, they had really felt that they that this had worked. And the thing to remember, they had been the dissidents in the 70s when the, the bien pensant view was like the Kissinger view at the time, which was like the Soviets will be around forever. So they felt they'd been vindicated and that they just needed, you know, they, they had the secret sauce. I also think with President Bush, you know, who from frankly, what I can tell is like a man of honor and integrity. I mean, I haven't really spent any time with him, but he did not have the grounding and the the the, the sort of sense of statesmanship and perspective and like a frankly correct view of the world to act for an American interest. So which I think is proved to be very damaging, candidly. Um, so, you know, it, and I've got a piece coming out in First Things in the next issue about how foreign policy really needs to be judged on stewardship, not on intent. I think President Bush had, an, from what I can tell, good intent, but good intent isn't what the metric is. Right. You know, and so that's, but I think he didn't, he didn't have a deeply rooted view. And so, I don't know, how does it change today? I think it's like, what was the first generation neoconservatives? They were liberals who were mugged by reality. I don't know. I think a lot of people now are like neoconservatives who were mugged by reality. I don't mm. know what that would turn you into a realist, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. twice if you've been mugged by reality, then yeah. you're like, then you really know. Yeah. It's it's rare, I think, that we get people on the show who got this time period right. Normally when we have people on, they have to like repent. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I don't um, want to say I'm like, I'm not uh, infallible to the, uh, well, so by any stretch, like I uh, asked my wife, but like, I mean, it's, it's uh, just on that. I think, yeah, I think that was. Yeah. So that's what I want to ask yeah. you about is because I think a lot of people, uh, especially, you know, this kind of new generation of conservatism, a lot of people are encouraged to have opinions and to have them loudly, yeah. very young. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's important, you know, for some of our listeners who may be in that kind of phase of life right now, is there any are there any opinions or stances that you took now that 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 you regret? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, not not that I can think of right now. I but I'm sure I will. Yeah. Uh, and I don't. Again, I really I say that with trepidation because I don't want to say. But I, I I don't. I mean, it was interesting when I because well, you mentioned that younger listeners. I mean, I would be a little bit judicious in how much you say at a at a at a very young age. I mean, it's different now because I think social media, the expectations are different. There's a there's a lot more sort of water under the uh, maybe I don't know. I I think there will have to be a lot more of the water under the bridge attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and I don't think people should be like frozen by the fact that somebody's going to hold them to something they say, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, you grow, I mean, it, you know, to that point, I think some of the views I held when I was younger that were maybe kind of like con contrarily realist that I was like taking as a counterpoint, not to care about anybody or, you know, maybe a flippancy about certain things that I, that I would, I would regret or I wouldn't espouse today. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of my is is kind of build out areas where you can find something that you can contribute rather than than than, you know, focusing on, you know, necessarily having to take a position on every issue that comes by. Mm. You had a perspective by attending those schools on, you know, two of the most elite institutions in American life, Harvard and Yale, and you live in the District of Columbia. So you kind of see SICE, Georgetown, et cetera. What is your theory of what the academic environment and milieu of foreign policy at the highest levels is like these days and has been like over the last 20 years? 
So I don't know right now because it's been some time and I graduated from college 20 years ago and I graduated from law school, you know, about over a dozen years ago. I mean, what I would describe the, I mean, Ross has a phenomenal book, underappreciated his first book. Very, It's kind of a little bit raw, but it's full of uh, insight and kind of brilliance called Privilege. You know, the I think I can't remember the, the subtitle, but it's like the education of the ruling class. And I think he rightly diagnosed, it's kind of this sort of uber merit, meritocracy with with the the advantages but also the disadvantages it turns into a kind of an instrumentality so i don't think there was like or instrumentalism i should say i don't think there was like a very strong foreign policy imprint it was more like you know technocratic um sort of moderate left liberalism was ascendant and and in those days it was still you know, the, I mean, certainly in when I was in college, it was still the ascendancy of the end of the sort of boulderized view of the end of history. I mean, Fukuyama's actually an argument that's more interesting and, and it's nuanced, but like the idea that like the problems had been solved. I remember this and, 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 to be, and a lot of the Republican foreign policy elite. I mean, bear in mind, a lot of the traditional Republican foreign policy are not discernibly conservative. Mm -hmm. They're just often tend to be more belligerent mm -hmm. or they happen to be. You know, fall into into sort of the networks of Republican leaders, but they often didn't question the assumptions of the sort of progressive dominant mm -hmm. view. But like, I remember being an intern in the White House in summer of two thousand one, and I remember listening to Condi Rice, who was the National Security Advisor at the time, and she was talking about. I, I actually I remember asking her. I can't exactly remember what I said, but it was like, "What are the big problems for American foreign policy?" And she was like, "Well, you know, we, we've solved most of the big problems, and like, I think you know, it's corruption in Indonesia, and like, you know, something like that." And and it was basically like, you know, nuclear tensions in South Asia. It was basically like the cleanup work of the end of history. It was this sort of technocratic, and 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 it was the time of like capitalism and. Um, social democracy being sort of triangulated. I mean, it was Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And that was still that was still pretty ascended by the time I went to law school in, in 2006, 2009. Clearly, that's changed since the financial crisis, the 2010s, you know, the rise of wokeism. So, I mean, things seem to have gone dramatically downhill. I mean, they weren't awesome when I was there. It was sort of lacked a soul. But that, frankly, that complaint, which I used to go on about at the time, seems like fairly mild compared to what, what it looks like now. Mm -hmm. What element do you think the kind of cultural proclivities of the class of people who make American foreign policy have to play in the in the policies they advocate? Namely, let's say, you know, if, if you were to be very reductive, mm -hmm. globalism, the, mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, New York, London, Berlin, Brussels, uh, DC, you know, th these, are, these are cities that a certain class of people easily flip between. Uh, how much do you think it's the tail wagging the dog on certain cultural priors that people tend to have versus, um, you know, a true kind of Socratic academic approach that leads them to the views that they have? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so I wasn't educated in the foreign policy realm. I mean, my undergraduate history was in like pre-modern history. Mm -hmm. I kind of like searched out which was a bit off the beaten track even at the time. And so like I did a lot on like medieval and ancient history. So it was not it was not like a technocratic we're training this person to be in the State Department mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then I didn't go to like one of the, pu the public policy schools or get a PhD in international relations or anything. I went to law school. And so and as I said, I was kind of like a, a little bit of an autodidact. So I didn't know. It's actually something I've discovered later that there I do think in this kind of NATSEC world, which I've kind of uncovered over time through my career, there is more like groupthink than I had actually fully appreciated. 
I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, the globalism thing, I think, would be there. I mean, look, I think structurally, you know, if if you were, you know, a Martian or whatever and looking at Earth, you'd be like, oh, America, Washington is the imperial capital. That, that, is how, <laughs> that, is how our, that is how our allies effectively look. And Washington's the capital of global governance slash policy. You know, I mean, we don't, we we, we have more like, I mean, if, if you're just looking at a real structural terms, more like security protectorates with special trading commercial relationships that are kind of ambiguous, but like they wouldn't be totally unfamiliar to past history, right? And these, you know, national security training or NATSEC or whatever, a lot of these public policy programs produce many, many awesome people who are, who are you know, th free thinkers and do their own thinking and all that. But on the whole, it's kind of created by this, this national security sort of, you know, international footprint. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of bought in and it's indoctrinated. Indoctrinated is a little strong, but it's, it's inculcated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I mean, the State Department, people go abroad. They're, you know, look, I mean, one example is like, you know, you see, I mean, I think most Americans instinctively, they, they honor, if not revere the military. And I think that that instinct is exactly right. But I do think there should be a lot more skepticism because look, just in terms of, of, of policy and like listening to say general officers talking on TV about our policy, a lot of these guys have spent decades serving in Europe, serving in the Middle East. They've put their own blood and they've written letters to the families of people who've died to, you know, back up these alliances or back up these wars. Mm -hmm. So there's like this, you know, you lose a detachment, mm -hmm. right? That like, um, and again, this is not all true of everybody, far mm. from it. There are plenty of, of, of great free thinking senior military retired and, and serving, but it's it's a tendency. And so I think that's where, you know, um, there's a lot of this like this sort of this sort of like almost like religious, you know, like like inquisitorial response to questioning the American, you know, kind of global system because it's like the rules-based international order has like this. I mean, Biden actually says it's sacred, <laughs> which I, to me is like grotesque yeah. because like, I don't think we should inject the sacred into politics basically in the first place, mm -hmm. but certainly not like these are in, these are in, they, they are deep and fundamentally important relationships that have mm -hmm. deep history, but they are fundamentally designed to serve the American people's long-term interests. Mm -hmm. And that, that requires like a different perspective. And I think that's where and then you get, that's the overarching thing. And then people are built into networks. And that's one thing somebody asked me the other day, who was my mentor? And I, I do have like mentors, like, I mean, uh, you know, that I would I would pay a lot of homage to, but it's not like I I like staffed somebody on their way up. You, you were not part of like a begats yeah. line of yeah, any exactly. particular foreign policy <laughs> Exactly, thinker. which I, I've hurt me a lot mm -hmm. and, and is a limitation mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but it's sort of like most people have, and again, this sounds a little, self-serving so forgive me but like i m most people are part they feel mm. indebted you know that they like oh and this is this person brought me up and mm. i need to stick in this kind of general slipstream and this is in my interest and this is how i stay in the the network i get invited to the 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 cocktail parties that happen you know as reunions or mm. whatever cocktail parties you know b bar dates or whatever yeah well and and that that is i think an underrated element is that in if if people are reliant on a certain genealogy in order to seek professional advancement, there is all sorts of structural forces that take over that prevent them from actually engaging in independent thinking. Um, because if they were to, and they had to leave their intellectual genealogy and start afresh in a new one, it would be a career damager. And it's yeah. just, and that's something we can be honest about. And and the structural forces that 
lead people to have certain views apply across the board. I mean, it even applies to someone who is dissident to the existing order yep. because they'll define themselves by being a dissident. And there are certain perversions that come out of that as yes. well. Uh, you, you touched on something that I find very interesting, which is the particular place that military officials have in kind of American civil religion. Uh, t- tell me more about that. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that we constitutionally and 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 in our uh, legislative system have recognized has risks. It's why you need a waiver to serve as the defense secretary, because we we recognize that the civilian and military leadership are two entirely different things. What do you think the biases that come out of the rightful, at least I think in the past, appreciation of our military leadership um, that Americans tend to have? Well, I think it's a serious issue. Um, I mean, bottom line up front, I think we need to bring more while maintaining the due respect and, and admiration and honor, particularly for the service that the people do in, in combat, whether the decision to employ it was right or not. We need to have a lot of skepticism about people who are, you know, military officers, particularly kind of senior general and flag officers, retired and so forth, who are commenting on policy, particularly inside this country, which I find uh, really uh, when it happens is, is especially dangerous. Um, I mean, look, I mean, just like situated historically, I mean, traditionally, our country had a quite negative attitude towards the military, particularly the standing military. I mean, my great grandfather was a career army officer between World War One and World War Two, and it was a not a highly regarded position, uh, profession. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, no. Like, I mean, we didn't, a standing army was considered antithetical to freedom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you go back, like, what is America about? I was talking to an Australian guy about this. I mean, don't tread on me. And like the standing army quartering in people's houses and the kind of, you know, like a, a strong instrument of executive tyranny. That, that takes power away from the people and has a natural instinct towards abusing its power. I mean, even at great cost because, uh, you know, volunteer and, and, and improvised militaries are much less effective than standing militaries. I mean, we did this in, in, the, in the Civil War and in the First World War and in a sense in the Second World War as well at great cost. We, we, a lot of Americans died because of that, but, but people thought it was worth it because that was like, the, but then that radically changed after World War II for good reasons. I mean, not only good, but like very compelling reasons. We couldn't go on like that because we were the only country that could prevent the Soviets from basically establishing a dominant position. That would have been terrible, not only for, for us, but for everybody else, but mostly, you know, because our own decision for us, but it was kind of a shared benefit. But now over the last 70 years, there's really grown up this, this um, strong and and sort of legacy. I mean, literally, a lot of people in the military are often, are often the children of people in the military. Um, and again, that's not bad. That's, that's, that's great. But like, it's just something we need to be aware of. I would say... The, te- the, de- the tendency I see among very senior, um, particularly, you know, retired military officers coming, a strong um, sort of small C conservative tendency, very status quo, very organized. Look, people who are promoted in the military are by definition doing the things that get you promoted. Now, often those people are great people, honorable, brave, et cetera. But that's not like usually the army promotes people who are good at leading large formations. The Navy dri- promotes good ship drivers. I mean, just to give an example, most of the best strategists, not all, but most of the best strategists I've met who you served in uniform retired at the rank of colonel or captain because they were too independent minded. They question often too much. That's not what you get promoted for in a military. Okay, fine. But like now we're there's this sense of, of of looking to like senior military as being able to comment on like domestic political things. And there and the, the whole point of having this standing military is it's better for military efficacy, but it's separated from the um from the society. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, this is kind of random, but like I've been doing some family history. I had a relative who was in the Civil War and 
they had to like basically get elected officer by their their unit, the, at least in the, I think in the north. I don't know if it was like in the south, but it was like that gives you a sense that that's not good for military efficacy. Yeah. People are like, ah, oh, no, we didn't sign up for that. Sorry. But yeah. like that's much more democratic. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's sort of the, the, the historical closer to the historical model. And I think we're very far from that. So, you know, my view on General John Hyten, who was vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said something really great. Uh, when he was retiring, he said, you're not going to hear me talk about domestic politics or anything like that. I'm going to talk about military stuff, technology, and like, that's it. And it's like, wow, thank you, General Hyten. You know, I think General Dunford, the former chairman, has done a very good job. You know, it takes some it takes some political savvy to appear apolitical. And we're seeing now a lot of military officers who are not doing that. And that mm-hmm. is very damaging. And it's, it's quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only like, you know, I mean, there's loss of trust in our military mm-hmm. that can have significant effects mm-hmm. on how the force performs mm-hmm. out there, but also like in our own society. I think from both sides here, it's a <clears throat> it's a it's a sunk cost conversation. I think that's what motivates both just your average American and your average, you know, general or, or military bureaucrat or whatever is, you know, this march of progress that we've been on for the last 70 years as it's kind of degenerated over time. It is to mean something. You know, we've we've sacrificed X, right. Y, and Z, you right. know, lives, dollars, and 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 time. And it has to be for something like gosh darn, it has to have gotten America something. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I think that's very real. Look, I mean, I think at a human level, and I saw this when I was in the Pentagon, I mean, a lot of these guys, particularly who were in, in the central command area in Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, they had written a lot of letters home saying this mm-hmm. is why you lost your son or daughter or whatever. And that's, you know, at a human level, that um that buys you in. And it, it takes an almost cruel or sort of inhuman level of detachment to go from that to yeah. to, to separating out. But that's what we need. That's mm-hmm. what the country needs. Alternatively, just churn, like new people. Or, or new roles. people. Yeah. But of course, exactly. And so like, you know, I see all these former CENTCOM people in Europe come out. Why don't we see more people from the Pacific? You know, Lloyd Austin, for instance, never served in the Pacific. Why are we? Why don't? Why aren't we raising? Okay, if we're gonna have military voices, how about having like, you know, the former Indo-PACOM commanders talk because inside the system there's debate too right between the services and between the commands but we tend to only hear from the people the iraq and afghanistan people and now a lot of the europe Mm -hmm. people and that tends to validate a particular approach well and it's this is what the first phenomenon i realized um when uh, i once heard a a commentator talking about how they had gotten a degree in sovietology a month before the soviet union (laughs) fell and you can see a version of this you know people who uh would have come of age in the 9-11 era going to get Arabic degrees and stuff. If, if, if your degree's in Arabic, you kind of are reliant on a foreign policy status quo that is primarily focused on the Middle East. That's just endemic to your lifestyle. And again, I, I totally understand why if people are acting in rational self-interest that they would want a foreign policy status quo that's based around the Middle East. It's just terrible for the country right. and our foreign policy priorities, which you mentioned Pacific Command. When was the first time you started thinking that our approach to China was maybe not the right one. So that's one I would say I wasn't super early. I even, I remember being in law school and you asked about things I regret. I think, I mean, I think I was early, I would say, you know, not to beat my own chest, but early compared to a lot of people in the field and so forth, but late compared to some people. I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned, we were talking about John Mearsheimer, for instance, like he was way, way early in the nineties. I started, I think by like, um, I think when I was actually, I mentioned when I was working in the in the Pentagon and, and in the start negotiations, I started reading a lot more defense analysis. 
and and even late in law school and started I was very influenced by people at um, like Andrew Krepinevich and uh, Bob Work, who was later Deputy Secretary of Defense, Democrat, actually wonderful, both amazing guys and brilliant. And they started talking about the military deficit. And so I would say I started to get clued onto it. There was a report called the Air Sea Battle Report that the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and their previous incarnation did that had an impact. And I started thinking about that. And then there there was political stirrings at the sort of foreign policy, you know, kind of level, not of military stuff, that the Chinese were changing their tune, particularly after the financial crisis. So I would say I was like late 2000s, early 2010s was when I started to kind of focus there. Mm. And I first, I mean, I wrote something on on whether, you know, we would be able to defend Taiwan, I think in 2013, and started to debate on those issues kind of more publicly around then. Um, you know, and frankly, if we, if we, there, there were efforts, there was a, the so-called air-sea battle effort within the Pentagon to try to focus more on China. If those efforts had borne more fruit as they should have, we'd be in a better situation now, but unfortunately they didn't. What was the time frame that that, that debate was happening? That was like 2013, 2014. Okay. So there was... The, the the chronology, at least in political and public life, that, that people tend to focus on is Trump talking about China and that mainstreaming the idea that this should be the focus of foreign policy. I think it's the defining that and trade, which are yeah. deeply interconnected. That's the defining legacy of like what his public witness had on a bipartisan level, like everyone mm -hmm. agrees at this point. Um, but there were internal debates, it sounds like happening mm -hmm. in the Pentagon at that time. What was the what was the valence of them? Was it just like hey, we should maybe just pay attention to this flank that we're not looking at? Or was it, were, were people thinking in terms of a full-scale reassessment of our foreign policy priorities? Well, not so much the latter. I mean, the, so let's go back. I mean, we met, we were talking about Edward Lutvak, I mean, the giant strategist, another amazing thinker. And and Edward, I think even in the 80s was saying, you know, if the Chinese rise, we're, they're going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And people like Andrew Marshall and the Pentagon in the 1990s were, were pointing to this. So, so people understood it kind of on just basic realist grounds. Like if a, if a power rises that's that strong, it's going to present a challenge, especially if it's run by the Communist Party, which mm -hmm. after Tiananmen, it seemed like it would be. Um, you know, under Bush and then early Obama, there was really this kind of engagement model, which I think will go down opprobriously in our history as a massive failure, probably even worse, maybe even worse than the, than the conduct of the two wars, which is saying a lot and driving our country into a financial crisis. So that's like, I don't know, a lot. But, um, <laughs> but like, I would say that the debates in the Pentagon were more coming from the recognition that the Chinese had had really moved a lot. So after the, the so-called third Taiwan Straits crisis in the mid-1990s, Clinton administration actually sent a couple carrier battle groups through Taiwan Straits and was basically like, you feeling lucky, punk? And the Chinese sort of backed down. The PRC took note and like overhauled its military over the subsequent, well, now, um, what, 25 years? But even f 10 years ago, 15, 15 years at that point, they really had done a number. They'd, they'd increased their defense spending. It was like almost 10% every year, laser focused on dealing with Taiwan and by extension, the Americans. And people started to recognize that in the Pentagon and in the defense establishment saying, wait a minute, like these guys are preparing to fight us and they're making quite a lot of progress. Meantime, we're pounding around the sandbox year after year and kind of taking our conventional advantage for granted. And so there were voices that were trying to say, and I mentioned Bob and Andy and I mean, others like uh, General Schwartz and uh, I think Admiral Roughhead, people like that, who were trying to push in the system to say, let's let's get after this problem. We're not quite sure what it means. There wasn't a lot of like geopolitics around it, but it was like, this is a problem. We should start working more on it. And it didn't add up to as much as we had hoped. It was it was contemporaneous with the so-called pivot to Asia. But the pivot to Asia was kind of like, it was sort of like a gesture. It was like, hey, Asia is more important. Let's just like go over there. 
And, and I mean, I, I don't mean to be kind of churlish or snarky about it. It's just like that's may have been what the system could support at the mm. time. But it wasn't like all connected together. I think, you know, you mentioned President Trump. I think it was in 100 years, that's going to be the most important thing that that happened. I mean, in his administration or probably around it is like not only like China's big, but it, we need to confront it mm-hmm. and deal with it in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. And that linked the the big macro political, you know, stuff with the geopolitics and then with the defense strategy. All of those had precursor roots, not so much what the president was doing, but like but like other things you could pick up th- strands but that kind of just like completely accelerated it uh, in a way that was yeah. super necessary, but not easy. It gave it gave it the fuel source to actually make bureaucracy start to pay attention to it. And you had an inside look at how these bureaucracies were adjusting to it. Walk us through your time in the Trump administration, culminating in the national defense mm-hmm. strategy that you helped author. What was the scene like when you got in there? Were people as attentive to these concerns as political leadership on the outside was? So... Um, I would say that, I mean, Kissinger has some line where he says significant strategic change can't be just a result of like virtuoso performance. They have to reflect underlying realities. So there was a latent like unease, if you will. And there were these shoots like, I don't know, whatever, you know, coming up out of the ground in the defense world saying, hey, this is like something we got to deal with. But the overall impetus was not. So people were, with a very notable exception of Bob Work, who'd been Deputy Secretary of Defense, he had this thing called the, the third offset strategy, which was focused on our military um, advantage against the Chinese and the Russians had eroded significantly. He was trying to push, but it was more like a single man's initiative. And then he was building on things by people like Dave Bachmanek and stuff. But so there was that. But but what, what I mean, in bottom line, what the National Defense Strategy did is take that kind of like insight and just like, macro orders of magnitude make it the whole department's priority and make it very geopolitical bob's thing was a little more te- technological in nature but but i mean the, the president president trump's um his guidance on china but also his kind of willingness to like break the amber was very important because like defense strategies before that were like oh we have many problems but we also have these problems and china's an issue but so so, so this is kind of like you know, you know, kind of all this, like on the one hand, on the other hand. And so there was, I think, a general context that like change was possible and also like a more realistic attitude towards things was also possible that you didn't have to go on with the shibboleths, which was like critical because we were like, I mean, we're reaching this like hyper divergence between what the Chinese were actually doing and what what we we were actually recognizing and and doing in, in response. So Mattis was the Secretary of Defense and he played a critical role. He had a lot of authority at that at that time bureaucratically and he created this small team that was reporting directly to him. And this was very important because traditionally these defense strategies had been kind of bottom-up products. And bottom-up sounds good, but it's not a way to get change, right? Because you ratify, it's log rolling. Mm -hmm. So Mattis had a small team and that was what I was kind of leading, uh, reporting to him. Basically what we did, I mean, interestingly enough, within the organization, there were there were equities and that were also sim- sympathetic to what we was trying. And I, my role, in a sense, I would say was like trying to drive forward as far as I, I, I joke sometimes I was like the, the sapper in one of those like Viet Cong, you know, those Vietnam War <laughs> movies. I'm like falling on the barbed wire. Yeah. The idea was like, we got to push this as far as we can. Yeah. And then the system will snap back. And that's basically kind of what happened. But we had basically the people who were concerned with the problem, particularly over the long term, were sympathetic. So the military services particularly like the Navy and the Air Force and the Army, which are looking out in the future and saying, whoa, we got a problem if we don't change. And Indo-PACOM command, obviously. And then the sources of resistance were like Central Command, the, the Joint Staff, which was very 
caught up in the in the in the in the wars, you know, the forever wars. Um, and so, you know, it was it was a bit it was pretty bureaucratically bruising, but at the end of the day, it came out. And I think it, you know, I'm certainly think we got it, you know, largely in the right direction. So you mentioned that, you know, your responsibility was pushing it forward and then you'd kind of get pulled back a little bit. I and I think that's a very good framework for thinking about all this stuff because uh, I think something very similar happened within the conservative movement hmm. generally. Interesting. Um, hmm. uh, about, well, I mean, about a whole host of issues, but but China specifically, you know, I think uh, there were not a lot of conservatives or, or Republicans, uh, you know, prior to Trump that were taking this issue very seriously. Uh, can you walk us through how you view the evolution of the of the of the party or of the conservative movement more broadly on the on the China issue. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is one I don't want to sound like corny, but I think this is one where voters were way ahead of the blob and a lot mm. of like particularly senior elected officials where I mean, sort of you mentioned the connection between like trade and China and all that. I think that was felt very, and that's one of the things obviously President Trump really tapped into in 2016, right, was this discontent. I think a lot of the Republican Party of the 2010s was still, I mean, kind of, you know, going on the fumes of neo-Reaganism. I mean, mm -hmm. I used to have a joke with a friend of mine who's on the Hill now. Uh, if you had a drinking game where you would, you know, take a drink every time that uh, Ronald Reagan was mentioned, you'd be drunk in like like 15 minutes in your average <laughs> Republican Party's, you know, Republican Party speech. And it's like, look, I... Ronald Reagan was amazing, but he's not like the perpetual solution to all problems. He existed in a particular place and state of time and, and, and time and so forth. I think a lot of people were still on on kind of autopilot about always cut taxes, more deregulation, trade is good, be strong, you know, and, and which has kind of been the formula that has, I think been created in the 90s when we were hyper farther than anybody else. I mean, in the 1990s, China was like this distant, you know, uh, yeah, someday in the future. You know, and like we're, you know, and people thought we have free trade and we have a free system of government, so we will advance. So they have statism, which will be not work. And at the time it was, you know, it wasn't clear to everybody. And we thought, well, you know, yes, they're trying to take advantage of it, but it's self-defeating. Well, by the 2010, late 2010s, pretty clear that's not true. There's deindustrialization and all this stuff. And the Chinese economy has been growing at five to seven percent or whatever for 20, 25 years. And so, I mean, speaking of getting mugged by reality, I think. I mean, it seems to me the voters primarily, but you know, President Trump understanding that and and channeling that were like, no mas, like we got to have a change. And I mean, clearly we're still in the process of of transitioning to whatever you know. And I mean, there's no one party you know standard. Obviously, people are going to have different views. But I look at people like you know, I look at someone like Senator Rubio, and I'm like, well, this guy's grappling with change. You know, like he was on a different page in 2010, but now mm -hmm. he's like. Okay, what time is it? Like, what's going on? What are the voters saying? What's China doing? We're going to have to have industrial policy. You know, we're going to have to have a focus more on China. You know, that sort of thing. That's like, you know, that's like going through the process of, uh, you know, trying to internalize how that's different. And it's changed the meaning of conservatism. I mean, it's yeah. interesting going back to like discussions with like Ross and my other, you know, good friend, Raihan Salam. Like, I mean, you know, None of us, I think, going back, like, you know, we're like, what did some friend of mine put it, Michael Kinsley, you know, uh, 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 celibates of the Church of Greed, you know, hyper like, uh, you know, free market fanatics. But it seemed at the time in the 90s and 2000s, like that was just like, well, that's what works. So even if you thought something else was better or more practical, it just had no chance. And that with the financial crisis, with deindustrialization, with China, 
that's now different. And so there's a whole new openness and plasticity that, again, I'm, I'm quite jealous. Yeah, you, you brought up, uh, you know, the fact that there's not really yet a consensus on uh, the China question within within the conservative movement. And I'm just curious how you would identify, I've, I've struggled thinking about this myself, like, what are the different ideological verticals on the China issue among public conservative intellectuals or members of Congress or whatever these days? So I find it with the exception of the true believers in the old kind of strong free market view who are basically like, what's the problem that China controls our pharmaceutical chains and could make semiconductors or artificial intelligence better than we had, like, well, for trade freely. And I think that view is declining substantially mm -hmm. within the party. I mean, obviously, some of the established think tanks and advocacy groups and some of the more senior members of Congress, that view was so prevalent that they're still in that mind. But I think from what I can tell, the conservative movement and new generations of politicians coming into the House, Senate, governor's office, et cetera, are much more you know, sophisticated or, or they know what time it is on that point. I would say the biggest divide that I see on China, so I get like no pushback from conservatives on that China's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I think for whatever reason, you know, there's there's probably people more in like kind of broadly what, what we're talking about, which is like deindustrialization, the threat to American security and prosperity. There's sort of like the true believer kind of more, you know, freedom agenda types who, you know, also may agree with that, but also say, well, it's a communist system and they're coming for us. The Reds are coming for us. I personally am a little less focused on that. But um, but I would say where the big divide I see now is probably um, how much how forward leaning we need to be on standing up against the Chinese in Asia, like including militarily. Um, and probably like how much internal on, on the other side, like how much internal reform do we need to adapt to the China? Like how, mu how much mm -hmm. should we push, you know, reshoring, for instance, or onshoring or whatever, it's, you know, like that. Those would be the sort of I mean, if I if I call this spectrum, it would be, you know, so the, by that by that, I find myself honestly. And I, I mean, the only thing in the middle of the road is roadkill. But like <laughs> the, I find myself in the middle, I feel like of a lot of these debates about China in the conservative movement which actually is like not always great because you're not really with like people who kind of suspect that you're not, you know what I mean? Everyone's yelling at you. Everyone's like, yelling at you. But I feel like, hey, if you're getting flack from both sides, you're probably right about where you should be. So. so you mentioned that the genesis of your interest in the China issue largely hinged on Taiwan, and that is largely the topic of your book, The Strategy of Denial. What's the problem? What, 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 what should be the telos of American foreign policy towards China uh, over the next 10 to 20 years? And then we can tear that apart. All right, cool. One slide. I'm interested in Taiwan because of China. Mm -hmm. So China's the, so China's the problem. And I've become very convinced that if China, I mean, the, the reason Taiwan is important is that it's very important for China to subordinate Taiwan in order to establish a um, hegemonic position over Asia, which is going to be the world's largest market area, right? And from that position, it would have a dominant position over the global economy, including our own. So this is like a big thing where I think on the right right now um, that that I'm I'm trying to argue is like, look, I'm sympathetic. Like, I don't want to get into additional wars either. Like, as, I, as we've talked, I've been against the wars. But like, there's an idea that we can kind of pull back onshore, build semiconductors, build pharmaceuticals, and we'll be fine in like Fortress America. And I'm not against that like in principle. I just don't think it works. Right. So what's going to happen is the Chinese are going to create a huge soft empire, basically. And then they're going to be the gatekeepers and they're going to be like, uh, don't trade with the Americans and don't buy their products unless you play ball. And the Europeans are weak and fractious and they're going to play ball with the Chinese. Ditto with Latin America and the Middle East. And that's the future. 
that okay that i think people can get to that the problem is it's like taiwan's this like little island off the coast. okay well how do we avoid that we can't do it by ourselves because americans shouldn't and don't want to do this all by themselves so you need a coalition the only way you're going to get a coalition to work is if countries think that they're going to be protected though right because they're all thinking to themselves uh i don't want to live under chinese domination but if i'm going to get smoked and be excluded from all the goodies that Beijing has to offer, I'm gonna cut a deal. And that's a very real phenomenon. It's very obvious in Southeast Asia, but it also exists in Korea, Japan, even Australia. And the, and the first wave there is Japan, South Korea, Australia, Southeast Asia, is that the- Yeah, I mean, and so basically, if you really narrow it down, look, the, when you get to brass tacks, we don't wanna fight a land war in Asia, right? I mean, still, if you wanna get it, fight a land war in Asia, get your head examined. We wanna, <laughs> we wanna be holding the line in the water. It's kind of simplistic, but it basically is right. I mean, we are a free system. We value individual human lives. As the Ukraine war makes clear, war, war has not fundamentally changed. At the end of the day, a lot of these are going to turn into bloodbaths. And that's true on land in particular. Naval and aerospace warfare tends to be high capital intensive. It benefits technology. I mean, you go back to the British Empire and stuff, I mean, not to get it wax eloquent, but we're better off if we're holding a line in in the kind of in the ocean and mm -hmm. that's the thing you know it's our, our allies with the exception of south korea japan um uh, uh philippines um uh australia and if we can hold that line with taiwan then the chinese aren't going to be able to project power out right and so then they're going to have difficulty because countries want to be free basically and we can work with that um and i mean free as an independent sovereign not necessarily democratic uh then we'll be in a good position and so the the to me, it's a very compelling strategic case. The problem is China's super, super strong and focused and we're distracted and we're giving ourselves high fives that we're all over the world and not taking the Chinese seriously. And the key thing is to make a defense of Taiwan, uh, you know, sort of rational and tolerable for us. And I don't want to sound heartless, but like, you know, it's one thing to lose 10,000 Americans, another thing to lose 100,000 Americans or a million Americans. And we want to keep it more on the on the on like the first order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, then the American people, I think, are more likely to support it and the Chinese aren't likely to do it. Mm -hmm. So I'll just start presenting various cuts on this. Okay. China, however much we care about Taiwan not becoming a part of China, China cares 10,000 times more <laughs> about it and it's 10,000 times closer to them or whatever, you right. know, order of magnitude. Uh, how on earth do you do you fight on those terms? So a couple things. I mean, one is this is this is what makes keeping the cost down so important is because there is an asymmetry of resolve in the you know scholarship that would say right they care a lot more about Taiwan than we do clearly. But here's the thing: Mao Zedong cared a lot more than Taiwan, about Taiwan than we did. I mean, we didn't even like Chiang Kai-shek, who was running the island at the time. But you know what? Mao Zedong couldn't do it. He would get humiliated and fail. And so he decided not to do it and we could hurt him. Mm -hmm. So like the closer that we're, I mean, even somebody who cares a tremendous about something, if they're going to fail in trying to get it mm -hmm. and they're going to suffer a lot, mm -hmm. they're not going to, they're unlikely to try. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm not one of these people who says we should recognize Taiwanese independence or mm -hmm. something. We should kind of say, we're not going to push the Chinese, you know, the, the old thing that Deng Xiaoping used to say, which is what we insist on solving the, the Taiwan issue, but we can wait centuries or something, you know, one of these like kind of, you know, references to the Song Dynasty yeah. or something, you know, th that's kind of what we want. And like polite fictions all around and we don't poke them. It's like this Pelosi visits, like don't poke them when we're weak and we're trying to like basically. So, so I, this is the kind of weird thing. I agree with the doves that like we shouldn't over provoke and that we don't actually need to like change china at the end mm -hmm. of the day what we do want is detente mm -hmm. but i'm a hawk 
in the sense that I think we need to build up our power and hold the line really clearly. Mm-hmm. So that's like, because mostly people are just like one or the other, and that's not good for America. So specifically then, what is the posture of the Taiwanese themselves on this question? How much skin in the game have they been willing to put in order to defend themselves? And do you think it's enough? No, this is a huge problem. And I, every time I talk to them, and you can check me on this, I mean, I'm like, I actually, I've said this a number of them. I'm like, have you, have you figured out like an escape plan because you're on your, on your way to being taken over? Um, I think what they're doing is totally unacceptable and they should be like quintupling their defense budget. I, 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 like if I were Taiwanese, I would I would want to spend 10% of my GDP on defense. I think they're spending something closer to two. And it's like the, the Chinese ambassador in Paris the other day was saying publicly that they're going to re-educate the people on Taiwan. I mean, like <laughs> they're not exactly hiding it. So I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're doing. On the other hand, here's the thing. I mean, if you follow what I'm saying, we're not doing this as a favor to the Taiwanese. This is not about the Taiwanese. This is about Americans. So frankly, like even if the Taiwanese didn't really, or a lot of Taiwanese didn't want them to defend them, we might do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Like during the Cold War, we weren't going to let the Soviets take over West Germany, even if the West Germans wanted to, because it would make them too powerful, Mm -hmm. right? So like now it is relevant what they do because it's critical that the Taiwanese make that cost as low as possible for us. So there's like this virtuous cycle that we need to get into where the Taiwanese lower the cost for us, then we do more, it's lower cost. And then, you know, so that's like what we want. The thing is we're actually getting, you know, I was actually talking to some people just before I came in here. We are getting in that direction. The question is how we're not doing it fast and with sufficient Mm -hmm. urgency. Mm -hmm. But like, I would say to to the conservative movement on this point, like, like, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not like psyched or, or or like flacking for the Taiwans to the contrary, but it's going to be really bad for us if Taiwan falls and maybe we can go into that. But, and so we, we can't over-focus on this mm. issue. This is basically an instrumental. But to the Taiwans, I say, if you push us above the threshold where it's worthwhile, like I say, it's like a 70-30 issue, like t- defending Taiwan's really important, but I'm not going to like blow everything up over it. If you push us over that line, you're asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. So there are some people in the movement, you know, that say that the best case scenario from their perspective on this on this question is stasis, right? That 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 you know, trying to to defend Taiwan or or trying to you know let them become part of China or let China take them over or whatever. Both of those are bad. So the best case is that we just try to stay in the status quo for as long as possible. What is your best case scenario and why exactly do you think that that's wrong? Well, let me clarify a little bit. So so my position would be to stay in the political status quo. But here's the thing, like in, for things to stay the same, they're going to have to change, right? So bear, bear this in mind. The People's Liberation Army did not have the capability to effectively attack Taiwan until basically this decade. We're not clear whether they can successfully do it yet. Taiwan Defense Ministry said last year that they thought they could do it and they could do it at a lot much lower cost by 2025. So like... If you want the political status quo, you have to do what I'm I'm talking about because you have to ha- you have to present them with a military denial, right? In a way that was not the case 25 years ago when the Clinton administration sailed those carrier battle groups through the Taiwan Strait. The Ta- the Chinese were totally incapable. They weren't even capable of hitting the aircraft carriers as they sailed through the strait, like right next to their country. Could we do that today and, no, and no. get away with it? No. I mean, well, I mean, we could just gamble and that they're no but they yeah. would, i mean i'm i don't know but my it'd be, it'd be a test of their will not a test of their yeah, capability yeah, yeah. Like, do they, do my they assumption is they could absolutely do it like yeah. so um uh so so that's so that i'm in favor of the political status quo i think what you're referring to is this argument that we should kind of like hedge a little bit and support them but not directly um 
uh, get involved ourselves. Is I'm that... referring to the Michael Anton argument that well, he made at uh, at NatCon. What? So, but I thought he was more in the like just cut him off. I, I, I may be wrong. Well, let me. So, so the cut it off thing I think is wrong because um, look, just logically, I mean, we're conservatives. We're not naive, right? Like, I mean, the Chinese clearly have broader ambitions. Like, it's totally clear. And by the way, what's the best way of showing or, or knowing what they're going to, they have, are building a huge military, not for Taiwan, but to project power. They're building bases. They want to build a base in the Atlantic Ocean. They're building aircraft carriers. They're building a space architecture. They're building nuclear powered submarines. It is crystal clear. That's a military like what we have. And I mean, I think I can say this on this. You didn't want to be p ticking us off over the last couple of decades, because like we could really come down on you, and that's what they're building. Mm -hmm. So like this notion that we can just like satiate the Chinese with Taiwan, mm -hmm. I think is delusional. It doesn't like reflect. I, I don't think it reflects a conservative. The one just on the the other argument, uh, my friend, good friend Pat Porter puts out is let's help them as much as we can. Kind of the Ukraine analogy. The problem is that's not going to work because. Bear in mind, Ukraine is one quarter the size of Russia in population. Taiwan is one one hundredth. Mm. Ukraine is is has huge land borders with NATO members. Taiwan is 100 miles from the Chinese coast. It's hundreds of miles from our nearest ally, which all of their targets are inside the range of, of Chinese uh, missile attack. China's uh, 10 times the size of the Russian GDP. So th I just that's essentially a recipe for failure. And if we go down that path, then other countries in the region are going to say, well, if they're going to give me that treatment, then I better cut a deal. So is the goal of American foreign policy, if you were czar tomorrow and controlling <laughs> this, to make it fundamentally untenable for or, or, or undesirable for China to even try right. to invade? Exactly. Or is it to successfully repel them if they did. Well, the goal is the first. I I hate war. Like that, <laughs> I, war is horrible, right? Like I mean, I am I view myself as anti-war. But like, if you're anti-war, the be, if the rational assessment is that avoiding war requires deterring it, which I think is true, and a conservative or realist view of human nature suggests that people mm -hmm. will be aggressive. It's in their if it's in their interest. Well, then you have to prepare for war. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like it's one of these cliches, but it's a cliche for a reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go back to Washington or the Romans or whatever. If you don't want, if you want peace, prepare for war, yeah. right? So my, like, that's what, I mean, I just like get really passionate about it because I'm like, man, like we are heading, we have a freight train coming in and mm. we, we still have the time to avoid, I think tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans will be killed. And the thing is, if we back off, that's not the end of the problem. It's mm. going to be, it's going to keep coming. It's mm. going to get worse. Mm. And so that's like, so, so, but the point, the way to avoid the war is to be like super laser focused on getting ready for it. And this is like, I mean, Top Gun, it's a little bit of a pop example, but like the original Top Gun movie, I mean, you go back and it's like movie, 1980s, we got the Soviet Union to collapse without a war. <laughs> Two thumbs up, that's what we want. And that's actually not our goal. Our goal is a stable balance of power where our interests have to be respected, just to be clear. But like, that was pretty successful in the 80s. What's the biggest military movie of the 80s about? It's about guys at a training school getting like super ready. You know, at the very tip, it's like, it's like, you know, Tom Brady level, like we can't take the super winning the Super Bowl again for granted. We are going to be super, super, super ready. And if the Chinese see that, because there are big downsides to failure for the Chinese, if they see that they're going to fail like Mao, I think they're unlikely to try. So then concretely, do you think that if it came to an invasion, even if we tried to build them up to deter it, do you think we could successfully defend Taiwan? 
Um, I think right now, yes. If we if we if we really don't mess around and go in like hard and without any questions and are like we're going to do this, which I think would be the right call at this point. I think we're pressing our our luck, though. I mean, I I think we were talking a little bit. I mean, I had an article in uh, Foreign Affairs last week. Just saying the Biden administration is saying a lot of the right things about Taiwan and stuff, but they're not doing what's necessary. And mm-hmm. I think the frustrating thing is like what's necessary is not it's not like it's not like a moon landing. It's not like we have to like spend a zillion dollars over 10 years. There are a lot of things we could do with like munitions, platforms where we have them, you know, base investments, things that are like in the tens of billions of dollars Mm -hmm. that could be done. And it's like, yeah, that's a lot of money, but like how much is that compared to A, our defense budget, or B, the costs of losing it? And the other thing about this is I feel like there's a sort of industrial aspect too, which is like, well, obviously we shouldn't be buying our defense industrial stuff from the Chinese. So can't we like, our defense industrial base is not doing enough of what we need. Mm -hmm. Let's, Let's reinvigorate it. Now, that doesn't just have to be captured by the defense primes. That could be structured in a way that it's more equitable and helps small business and the working class and the middle class and so forth. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But like, let's just do it, mm-hmm. you know, because then then we'll be in a position again to to avoid the war. So concretely, how does it work in in the event of a hot war, you're mentioning how the biggest asset that China has is that all of these relevant allies in the region and everything are all within missile firing distance of the Chinese mainland. Can't they just, you know, forgive me for being reductive, just yeet missiles at Taiwan yeah. and we, we're we trying to, in the meantime, supply them over thousands of miles mm-hmm. of water? H- how on earth is that just not an attrition game for us, whereas they, they, they bear almost no cost to do it because it's so close to them? Right. Um, that's their big advantage. Our big advantage is they have to cross 100 miles of water and sustain operations uh, across that. And that's a big. A but big do they win. even have to cross the water? Can't they get away with just, you know, long range missiles plus aircraft? Well, I go into this in my book at some length. This is this is a, this is a, it's a very good question. I think no. I think our own experience of attempting to use bombing and sanctions against countries to kind of get them to come to their mm-hmm. knees doesn't work. I mean, if you look historically, we bombed North Korea, we bombed North Vietnam, uh, we bombed Iraq, uh, we used heavy sanctions on Cuba, Iran, and basically they, and, and, and North Korea and North Vietnam, they basically haven't worked. You know, they can buy you a little bit, um, but you know, why did we invade Iraq in 2003? It was partially because of the, of the failure, the perceived failure of our uh, bombing and sanctions campaign. So now this depends on the level of willpower of particularly the people on Taiwan. So I think in that case, if they get bombarded Battle of Britain blitz style and they give up, um, that there's only so much we can do. And that is kind of differentiable to people say in South Korea or Japan that, you know, if, if you're not willing to put up with bombardment, um, then you know there's only so much we can do because we can't give you perfect security. That's not the job of the American people. Mm-hmm. And if you look, um, you know, uh, historically, I mean, actually, again, historical examples—they're always imperfect. But you know, if you look back at the famous uh, surveys of our bombing campaigns against Japan and Germany, the conclusion was actually societies are actually quite resilient to even very heavy bombing. I mean, the Japanese didn't give up. Mm-hmm. until the com- combination of the of course the atomic bombs but also the soviet intervention and impending invasion and the germans didn't give up either so i think that's what that's we should certainly expect of the, of the taiwanese and it would be very punishing 
Um, but if 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 it turns into like, you know, just throwing punches at them uh, sort of indefinitely, then actually we kind of win. And by the way, that also shows the rest of Asia two things that are not good for China. One, that they're really mean and cruel and nasty, but B, that they're resistible, that they don't have the ability to come and like put a gun in your face. Mm -hmm. And that's that's going to, I think, actually strategically lead countries to kind of want to work with us. So on the economic onshoring side of this equation, what some of your critics say should be the priority, um, isn't the problem here that if it actually came to a hot war with China, all supply chains instantly break down anyway. And so if we are going into this with the expectation that there will be an attempt, shouldn't the overwhelming priority be on nationalizing our supply chains or at least taking them out of the Chinese mainland? Because if it gets to this point, I had um, someone mentioned to me at the last National Conservatism Conference, a friend of mine, he was like, he, he had this kind of cynical take. He said, I get the feeling that the only way that America's corporate class would let us onshore supply chains from China is if we were in a hot war with them. Um, and and so what do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, I, I don't understand this critique because like they're they're not incompatible at all. Like I'm in favor of mm -hmm. reshoring, you know, significant parts of our industrial base, particularly our defense industrial base and like investing in research and development. So I don't I, I feel like that's like a kind of illogical. Like mm -hmm. we have an industrial policy and we have a defense thing and they're mm -hmm. like you should make the right ones for both. And of course, they're related in the sense you need to defense industrial base to support your military. But like, I don't, people are like, no, we shouldn't defend Taiwan. We should invest in R&D and build up our industrial base. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, why don't we do both? Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't, I don't like logically understand mm -hmm. the purported contradiction. Well, is it scarcity of political will, of 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 resources, of, of voting time on the Senate floor? I mean, I, I, but I don't think that's real scarcity. Like, yeah. that's like, okay, like, the overarching thing is like China is like the priority. In fact, like if we orient around China, like I'm kind of a defense guy. That's like my thing. You know, I actually I think the political geoeconomic stuff is crucially important. I just don't. It's not. I mean, it's not my area of expertise. Right. But I think people should be taught. But it's like they can they can run several bills mm. through. The, I mean, they just shown they can run yeah. several bills yeah, through yeah. the Senate, Congress. <laughs> so like I just I just reject that that's a contradiction, yeah. and um. I mean, I agree. Like, I think companies should be putting a pretty heavy risk premium mm -hmm. on uh, on on investments and so forth in China. That said, I don't think it's impossible that we could trade across a barrier even after or maybe even during a war. Now, if you're a company and you're doing making money off of China while they're killing Americans, you're probably going to have a lot to answer for. But on the other hand, I'm not of the view that we need full scale decoupling necessarily. I mean, even know. in the event of a hot war. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because, Is there any historical precedent yeah, for how that would yeah, work? Yeah. In the First World War, it's actually interesting. My friend uh, Tom Shugart, he pointed this out to me. He apparently, basically, the British were going to put a full-scale blockade on Germany at the beginning of the war. And the uh, like, the Ministry of Economy or whatever basically said, we can't afford that. We need to con we need to quietly continue trade in order to pay for the military buildup that you want. Now, I don't know if that lasted through the whole war. Of course, during the revolution, for instance, there was heavy smuggling, which is essentially a form of trade during so i mean i actually think it would be something like the norm what we really need to basically to get back to your point about bombardment we need to zero out or diminish those vulnerabilities where, that give them tremendous leverage mm -hmm. like if they want to sell us toy cars or whatever mm -hmm. no sweat if they control advanced semiconductors or you know tucker was talking about ibuprofen and cetaminophen or penicillin that that stuff we can't afford mm -hmm. now we and we could have provisional vulnerability that could be readily 
reshored or friend friend short or whatever. I, again, like that's not my, but I think that can without question all be done at the same time. What about the element of this um, that has to do with the way that the Chinese go about geostrategy that is fundamentally different, I think, than the Soviet Union, which is that they tend to use vehicles of soft power much more than a conventional military force would. So for instance, is 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 their conquest of Taiwan likely to look more like either the way that they're doing economic colonization via Belt and Road or more acutely the way that they've politically taken over Hong Kong? Um, no, because I actually, their, their, their attempt to use economic leverage has failed mm -hmm. uh, and soft power and so forth. In fact, I, mean, I don't think they really have any soft power anymore. Mm -hmm. But like Taiwan, the, 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 the population is like basically anti-mainland at this point. Mm -hmm. Nobody in Hong Kong has shown them that one country, two systems is, is garbage. And even not only in, in, in creating like push, you know, the Indians have thrown out a bunch of Chinese companies, the Australians. Um, uh, they're they're going back and forth to South Korea on the fat issue right now. Even even like relatively you know kind of more modest economies like Sri Lanka and in East Africa, they're pushing back on. The reason is because it's very difficult to turn economic leverage into really decisive political outcomes because it doesn't like again Mao Zedong said power comes out of a barrel of a gun. You know like that's decisive. They're going to have to invade really to confidently solve this this problem. Soft power doesn't soft power matters on the margins. You know, but if you in, in sort of like in kind of the warp, warp and woof of, 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 you know, international politics, mm -hmm. but in terms of decisive changes, that basically mm -hmm. happens because of direct military force. And they're building a military to do that. Mm -hmm. So like this idea that the Chinese have a totally different strategic culture, I don't really agree with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think um, military and geopolitics stuff is like basically Darwinian. Like, I mean, this idea that the Chinese are sort of these like voodoo ninja kind of things is like i mean how did they win the civil war they defeated the the guomindang yes they used political warfare to weaken their enemies but they defeated in a military battle mm -hmm. how did they take over tibet with like military force how did they fight the americans back down from the yalu in 1950 through in the korean war through direct military mm -hmm. force they were just weaker before so when mao recognized that with people's war you pursue your advantage the great example of this is the war in vietnam they initially really used insurgency in the south of the Viet Cong, mm -hmm. but south vietnam was not defeated by the Viet Cong. It was defeated by a mass armored and in, in air invasion by North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Cut on this, I wonder, is that is it that China is ultimately conventional military force and it's just that every other Western power has forgotten how to do the other elements of hmm. diplomacy um, because we're more focused on pushing social progressive yeah. results in, you know, the countries that are on the outer peripheries of the empire, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't think we really do diplomacy and i'm i'm really in the shadow of my my partner wes mitchell on this point brilliant uh strategist and 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 public servant but just that like we don't we need to get back to dealing with diplomacy as an as an instrument of power and great mm -hmm. power that's that's in inherently deeply interconnected mm -hmm. with military mm -hmm. affairs and military balance doesn't mean that there's this sort of like Bob Gates kind of thing that like, oh, we need to give more money to the State Department. It's not like we give more money to the State Department so they're like a handmaiden of like counterinsurgency stuff, which is mostly fad anyway. It's like diplomacy is how you arrange power in space mm -hmm. and time. And again, I'm, I'm, this is uh, hat tip to Wes, but just like in the context of the military balance and the power balance in a very concrete way. And that we're like mm -hmm. totally out of practice on. Mm -hmm. So if one was to rank order best case or, or, you know, different scenarios in terms of just the overall quality of life impact for Americans and then, you know, the kind of our power on the world stage it is, do you think there's any validity to the idea that a peaceful 
uh, not even takeover, but just kind of detente between China and Taiwan, that is a downstream consequence of of us pulling away from the region is the best case scenario that in a world, uh, especially especially post-Ukrainian war, where China is looking and seeing, okay, there are actually consequences for nations by the global order if they are belligerent. Is, is this scenario a possibility? America pairs back, de-escalates its rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and China ultimately realizes that not doing anything is the best possible result for them this decade and next. I don't think it's consistent with conservatism or realism. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know. I mean, you mentioned the world order. That's like essentially a kind of possibly like liberal dubbish interpretation of state behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like... I mean, and again, I, I, I kind of think of conservatism and realism as sort of cognate. It's like, okay, if there's a state or an individual with a lot of power, they're likely to become more ambitious, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, the appetite grows with the eating, I think mm -hmm. is the French saying. And like, um, if they don't face a counterforce or boundaries, they're more likely to exploit that opportunity. Okay, so if the Americans pull back why would the Chinese, like even rationally, like mm -hmm. if I were, I, I, sometimes, I, I often try to think like if I were, you know, I try to be a ruthless jerk for America. <laughs> like if I were a ruthless jerk for China, I'd be like, uh, thank you. Can I have some more? Yeah. You know, like why not? Yeah. Right. So I like, I don't, there's sort of this, one of the, so, so I'll tell you this, the most powerful critique that I feel of my set of arguments is not the ones that, from the perspective of your, but is the ones that like we're screwed. Like, we got to make the best deal we can. Mm -hmm. Like, they're too strong. They're too focused. We don't have our stuff together. And we got to cut the deal. I don't think that's right. I mean, it's it's most powerful over Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But, like, it, it point carries. The notion that, like, you know, it's like when this guy, China guy who kind of comes after me on Twitter and stuff is like, it's like both that they're not a threat to Taiwan and that we shouldn't over-provoke them. It's like, well, if they're not a threat to Taiwan, then what's the downside of like making sure that they can't do it? Mm -hmm. And if they were like too strong, then sh then like shouldn't we be, you know? I think I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, it's like, well, which is it? Yeah. You know, like, are we, why would we pretend that like the Chinese, and also like maybe under Deng Xiaoping or, you know, Jiang Zemin, you could, you could think that the Chinese were becoming kind of buying in. Like Xi Jinping could not be more obvious mm -hmm. that he is not interested in the rules-based yeah. international order. Or yeah. Whatever, you know, yeah. so like, I don't think we can expect yeah. good behavior. We don't need to expect, we're not necessarily dealing with like crazy, mm. totally irrational aggressive. The way you get totally crazy, irrational aggressive is a war starts and then it escalates and you can't stop it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's even with Hitler. Like Hitler was still kind of calculating before the outbreak of the war. But then once war is broken out and it's boom, 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 then it's like everybody's mm -hmm. going to their corners and that's what we don't, we don't want to get. Yeah, so it seems you, like the, well, just one second. It seems like the impetus of that set of takes that you just laid out would be assuming kind of moral purity on behalf of the Chinese, which I think is just like kind of silly at yeah. this point. And even if you, I want to get into this in a minute, but like, even if you do not assume like, you know, that they're an evil empire, right. like if you, if, you, if you don't take that moralistic view on it, there's there's no reason to believe that they're a particularly moral exactly. force in the world. And, yeah. and that just like normal ban. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that, that, that take on it would, would I, is silly for, for that reason, I think you're saying. So, what do you think is the most likely scenario here? Like prognosticate a bit. And I know that, you know, it can vary depending on who ends up in the White House, who controls Congress, whatever. But break it down for us. What are some of the most likely scenarios in the next five, 10 years? 
Well, look, I, I don't I don't do probabilities because that's like asking for trouble. And I, I like I don't know. It's too many factors. But like, I'll tell you this. I'm I'm very worried. I'm very worried because and again, I mean, I think to your point, Sir Rob, like I look at it sort of rational actors sort of like too strong as if like the perfect decision maker. No, like just kind of like normal, generally rational kind of self-optimizing behavior. If I look at it that way, I get really worried that the Chinese are going to act because it might make sense for them. I mean, for the reasons that they might have a military advantage, Taiwan's not going to fall into their lap, you know. Personal things like why did Putin invade Ukraine? Well, part of it was probably this is getting old and he wanted to do it. He wanted to wrap it up. He wanted to be that guy. Similar thing with Xi Jinping. They're about the same age, I think. And also, you know, we are kind of getting ourselves together. The Taiwans and the Japanese are starting to wake up. And it's like China's maybe like, hey, I got an advantage now and I don't have later. You know, our military keeps talking about 2035. And it's like, OK, great. We'll be set in 2035. Well, the Chinese apparently want to have it done by 2027. So it's like, oh, huh. So if I like wait eight more years, I'm not going to have the option. OK. You know, if you look historically about war, why wars happen, it's often a perception of a window of opportunity mm. that will close. So mm. this is like and there are other explanations for that is that's what worries me. <laughs> so like and that's my fervor. And the thing is. You know, in, in the world of defense strategy and the world of things like onshoring and so forth, things done now take years to pan out, mm -hmm. you know? So it's this like slow motion thing. It's like turning a ship. You know, it's like the Titanic. They saw the iceberg and they didn't turn fast enough, right? Because it took too long, right? That's the kind of thing we got to like, you know, if, we, if we're if we like, a, you know, 500 yards from the iceberg and we're like, oh, we're going to turn. It's like too late. You know, yeah. sorry. That's the, it's actually not a perfect example because that might have been better. But anyway, you, you, get the, you get the point. Let's say it's not the Titanic. But like. That's sort of where we need this super urgency now and then and then hold the line. But otherwise, I'm I'm and that's why I wrote that piece in Foreign Affairs uh, last week, you know, talking about this vast, apparent or very significant divergence between the administration's rhetoric and what it's doing. And it's like I, I, I desperately want somebody to tell me, oh, you, you don't you have your facts wrong. Unfortunately, I've heard the opposite from very credible people often privately. It's like, yeah, you're right. And it's like. Bleep, because like then we're like there's this again this strain coming, and and any outcome is bad. War is awful. Period. Even if we win, it would be very costly and more costly than it need to be. If we lose or if we back down, it's not the end of it. You know they're going to keep going because like it's going to to get back to it. They're they're aggressive. They're alpha. They're like an alpha type A of the international system. They're going to keep pushing. Oh, mm -hmm. we got these guys on the run. Let's roll. You yeah. know that's not good. So you touched on it here, but I'm, I'm very curious, kind of the, the, the meta regime questions here, which is uh, where I think we're, we're also uh, likely to suffer, you know, China autocratic regime where, where, you know, decisions and long term planning are easier to make because of their regime type. Whereas here we have to have these debates in public. Right. And the 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 time preference on it is longer. Um, is that also like hurting us dramatically, which is that because under the American political system, we have to have a debate about what our foreign policy priorities are, that the second it looks like the people who are China hawks are likely to win the debate, yeah. it creates an incentive exactly. structure for China to move even faster. I think it's that. I think there's a democratic element. There's also just like we are the distant global power traditionally. So even if we had a different political system, it would still be probably pretty difficult to shift because, you know, they they are the challenger they have a natural incentive to do what they did, which was to, to lie low and kind of play nice, you know, where we were like the, you know, we're the, you know, the, we stand taller, Madeleine Albright kind of thing. And like, so um, I think that to me would be the biggest structural um, issue. 
I, I do think that I, I, this point about um, open uh, is is a real problem I, I, that I, I think about a lot um, because, you know, I'm I, I mean, I, but I am of the view that we will not change if enough people in our system don't agree because mm-hmm. there's so many veto points in our system mm-hmm. and there's so much, you know, kind of inertia that we have to persuade people. And so, and the thing is, I think the Chinese have an understanding of the basic dynamics already. Mm-hmm. But it is an issue. I was, that foreign affairs piece I mentioned, it was like somebody put on Twitter, there was like, it was on like Russian television. And I was like, that didn't make me happy. But it's yeah. like, well, is that, the, that's sort of the price of, uh, because I, 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 I'm still just shocked at how, how sanguine and frankly hubristic so much of our political elite are. Mm-hmm. You know, as if like it's, you know, we're going to be fine or they're just going to like sign it away and we'll figure it out. Neither yeah. of those is true. And so l- layering onto this, um, what do you make of the idea that the the appetite for the China issue in D.C., the uptake at which China has become a priority for a lot of foreign policy leaders in D.C. is to essentially sublimate the same appetite um, for you know military action in the Middle East and and Europe, um, you know what what do you make of the Johnny come latelys but equally enthusiastically kinds of people in neocon world mm-hmm. that are saying like oh yes 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 we must focus on China also do you, do you think that the perspective that you have is at risk of co optation and redirection in a mm. deleterious way. Uh, I thought maybe more like a year ago, less since Ukraine. I mean, my my view on the neoconservatives is like, welcome all the help we can get, certainly converts mm. the cause. And I would say the argument to a neoconservative, um, you know, broadly construed is like, if you want to spread democracy in the world and at the point of a gun or whatever it is, um, the best way to have that is to have the United States be as powerful as possible. And that the biggest, by far the biggest challenge to that is China. I mean, if you look at why most countries democratized after the end of the Cold War, it's because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the ascendancy of the United States. So people mm-hmm. get in line. Why is Taiwan a democracy? Because mm-hmm. they were aligned with the United States. I mean, they're internal factors. But when, I mean, Samuel Huntington wrote about this. Like, so that's like what the, the biggest problem with the neoconservatives, a lot of them, is that they, they, they talk the talk on China, but they don't walk the walk. I mean, this is why I call John Bolton a dove on China. And he is, because he is not willing the necessary means required to attain the objective that he's talking about. And people mm-hmm. like Josh Rogan are in the same category, which is like they flap their wing, their hawk wings on China, but their base, the actual effect of their chosen policies in other theaters where there absolutely is a choice and a trade-off. Mm-hmm. No question. Military terms, certainly in political capital. I mean, when, when a diplomat or a policy statesman, statesman or woman goes abroad and makes, what are their asks? Is it, is it Taiwan first and second and third? Or is it uh, China, uh, you know, pandemic, and then maybe, or sorry, uh, Ukraine, pandemic, and then maybe we'll get to China later? That matters. Mm-hmm. Military forces can only be in one place at one time. I mean, they can only be used once. I mean, still, they still operate in space and time. We're not living in this like cyber world of like, I mean, there's cyber is really important, but it's not like fundamentally tra- transform these things. So I think this is, I actually am kind of in the reverse situation now where I thought there was more substance to the change and what it, it, it actually you know if if we end up frankly getting decisively defeated or you know sort of stood down in the western pacific i think these hawk neocon types will bear a lot of the responsibility because i mean i put this on on twitter the other day i mean hawks are supposed to appreciate hard power they're supposed to to really take it seriously. And we all know the objective evidence is that we are in a bad, bad way in Taiwan. They might want to spend double 
on defense. But we haven't been, I mean, you haven't been doing that for 10 plus years, doing the things that they think are necessary. Okay, keep making the arguments for doubling the defense budget. I personally don't agree, but like keep making those arguments. But right now we have to live in reality if we're actually supposed to observe America's interests. Mm -hmm. So like they are the people, like Elon Omar, or like AOC, whatever, like what do you expect, right? But like we expect the neocons and the hard power people to actually take this stuff seriously and they're not. And they're, and they're peacocking around about, you know, Ukraine and Iran. And it's like, that's not serious, man. This is for real. Like mm -hmm. lots of people are going to die mm -hmm. and like l you're supposed to take this seriously. So what gives? Mm -hmm. But I hear we can walk and chew gum I, at the I, same I, time. I tweeted something the other day. It's like, if you don't believe we can walk, chew gum and juggle change laws at the same time while riding a unicycle, you hate America and you think hate, the troops are You hate dumb. America and the rules based national order so much. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, that distracts me. Ah, up the wall. It's like so pathetically unserious. It's yeah. just like American people deserve a foreign policy and a defense strategy that's actually real mm -hmm. and like consistent with their interests. Well, and, and this is the flip side of it is that I I, I find myself kind of very much in between and I mean, yeah. maybe we will be the roadkill on a lot of these intra-right China debates um, is that I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I honestly like it's more like whoever spoke to me last at this point is like, so I'm, I'm more. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very convincing. You got to <laughs> stop. Uh -oh. Will Ruger is going to be unhappy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but like the, the, the point that I think is it um, was really revealing is that you know what a lot of your opponents on the right would have said is that oh bridge is part of this set of people who just you know this is another way to sublimate america's instinct to militarism but you've actually put real credibility on the line over the course of this ukraine war first of all thank you um what has that experience been like having to have the rubber meet the road on your recognition of reality that scarcity in every domain of life political right. economic military is real um scarcity exists as a concept we have not yet achieved utopia um and having to to run contra the interests of the blob over a sustained period of time how many friends have we lost oh, how many times have we called a it's funny that they stooge. think i'm part because i've like definitely png'd from yeah. a lot of the the sort of blob and kind of blob adjacent things about about ukraine about uh i mean the you know i don't know what the story would be you now i mean my opposition to attack you know bombing iran in the 2010 2010s and so forth so like I guess I'm again like your roadkill, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm sort of, I'm sort of uh, nomadic. But to me, it's rational based on what's in American people's interests. And I think on the Ukraine thing, I've taken a lot of flack. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I feed myself and my family, so I'm not. It's small, small, uh, small violin paying for me on the playing for me on the whole. But like, you know, I mean, people are, and and you and you. I mean, it was it was really like there was a sort of moralistic euphoria you know, in the Ukraine war. And it was just like to be kind of like raining on that parade was not welcome. Mm -hmm. But it's like, actually, you know, like I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in February uh, with uh, my friend Oriana Master saying like, don't let Ukraine be a distraction from Taiwan. And it's like, oh my God, it's like, blah, blah. And it's like, we were like totally correct. And mm -hmm. it sucks. Mm -hmm. It really sucks. And this thing about sublimating, like, I, one thing, I mean, I, you know, a lot of friends on the sort of more restrainer, I mean, Will is a great guy. You know, he would not be in this in this category at all. But there, there's a sort of like this sort of moralistic element that's like we don't ever want war. But like if you really take war prevention seriously and you're truly a realist, you recognize that you have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the police. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, my view is like if you're just 
that's why I hate being called a hawk or a dove because mm-hmm. it's like it's contextual. Mm-hmm. Depends. Yeah. Like I was a dove on Iran, a dove on Iraq, dove on Syria, dove on whatever, you know, but like I'm a hawk sort of on China mm-hmm. right now, but then I hope to be a dove later once mm-hmm. we've gotten it straight. And then, you know, so it's like, that's, I don't know. I'm like, that's my, my perception. Well, and the, the other element to this, I think is that we've had dishonest actors in public life who have used realist, hard-headed language to engage in moralistic foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And and those those public actors should be condemned in the strictest possible terms because honesty in the public sphere is, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think this is another valuable corrective to all this stuff is that, you know, people have to make the actual argument here. We can't rely um, because a lot a lot of the our foreign policy elite have proven themselves to be deeply corrupt and incompetent. And so there probably has to be more legwork, probably to your frustration, done to make the affirmative case for something like this, because the traditional mode over the last 30 years has been that, you know, elite America gets obsessed with something and a lot of people get poorer and a lot of their family get killed because of it. I mean, this is like, we need a better elite. Mm-hmm. We need a better performing elite. Like mm-hmm. there's always going to be elite. There was an elite in like Maoist China. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. Like our, our friend of mine wrote a piece defending the blob. And I was like, the blob's terrible. Like, I mean, think about how powerful we were in the 1990s and like where we are now. I mean, mm-hmm. we neglected the rise of China. We wasted our power in a lot of these Middle Eastern wars that were mm-hmm. neither necessary nor effectively conducted. You know, like, it, so it's really depressing. Mm-hmm. And I share a lot of your ire, but we can't... We, like at the end of the day, geopolitics is determinative. Mm-hmm. Like if we, you know, cause it's the system. Like if we don't get that right, we have to make the best of it. And yeah. so that's like the kind of the way I look at it. And that's what I'm trying to do. I don't typically ask people this question because the answer is usually just themselves. But I'm, I'm curious kind of who do you look to, because you engage in this through an autodidactic process of mm-hmm. learning about this issue. Who do you read, look to? What are your information sources? Because this is the other mm-hmm. element is that there's like a fundamental information asymmetry when you're talking about some place far away. When you're talking about domestic policy, it's like you've got your econometrics and people have different yeah. theories and everything. How do you how do you go about establishing the information set? And then I guess earlier in your career, the worldview that you world formed um, on foreign policy and specifically China. Well, on the, on the latter one, I mean, I read a lot of the kind of traditional I mean, I, I was, you know, as I said, I was not a foreign policy. I got a like traditional, you know, classical and medieval early modern philosophy. It was like, you know, I'm not like going to explain, you know, Hegel to you or anything. But like I read a lot about that, um, certainly a lot of, of history. And then I think when I was kind of doing that autodidact thing in like law school, I read a lot of like, you know, I mean, people like Morgenthau and Robert Gilpin, um, you know, some of these like older realist thinkers. Uh, who are a little less obsessed with kind of testing their hypotheses as the academy kind of is now and more, a little more classical, a little, a little less parsimonious, but I think more accurate, you know, E.H. Carr, these kinds of things. And there are some thinkers out today, you know, Dick Betts, uh, people like that, where I learned a lot. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned someone like Bob Work. Now, how do I get my information? I mean, I'm mostly in production mode. I kind of find it sort of pathetic that I'm not reading as many books, but I I joke about like working on my book for a few years. I was like, you know, my book was, I mean, I, forgive me, uh, Father, but like I, uh, I, you know, my my book was like, like God, it would have no other books before me, before him. <laughs> so like, um, but it was, you know, I mean, I, you know, I feel like people like us, we are we are sort of flooded by 
you know, corporate media sources. So I so I get those and I see a few of those in the list. I have a few defense ones. And then I watch things like Fox, particularly at night. You know, I mean, I always like people like love to bash on Fox. But it's like you get such a diversity of viewpoints on mm-hmm. Fox. Mm-hmm. You get like traditional neoconservatism. You get more like my point of view. You get even farther, you know, so and then like Twitter is very for all Twitter's many faults. You get a lot of d- diverse and distinctive viewpoints where people can say what they actually think until they're canceled or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like that's that's um, that's those are probably my um, my sources. I don't know if that's helpful, but it is. And how do people keep up with you and everything that you're doing? Well, thank you. I've got my, my the paperback version of my, my book is coming out in next month. So hopefully people I mean, I, I wrote it for a broad audience, not for the sort of the wonkocracy, the NATSEC community. Um, but uh, hashtag NATSEC. Hashtag NATSEC, exactly. Uh, but I also I have I, I, I'm on Twitter at Elbridge Colby dot com. Elbridge Colby at Elbridge Colby. And then if you want to check out what I'm, you know, more broadly, the Marathon Initiative is our is our group. And I've got I put I post stuff there. So what's the origin of the name of that? So it's actually, uh, it's not like the, just the, the run. It's actually an example of a successful strategy that was well adapted and implemented, the Battle of Marathon, when the Athenians rejected the first Persian invasion. Um, they understood the Persians were coming. They understood their strengths and the, and weaknesses vis-a-vis the Persians. And they decided instead of waiting for the Persians to land and come to Athens, they would go meet them on the beach where they had a better advantage. And they did that and they won a victory. Mm. And so it's an example of like, a real strategery yeah. saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's our strength and advantage. You go in a sense, like a Taiwan thing, you know, you, it's better to meet them forward. It'll achieve the same goal. If you wait, you're going to fail. Yeah. And what's the emblem? Uh, the emblem, I think it's, I actually think it's a um, Themistocles, who is the uh, Athenian leader at Salamis. I think it's like a, like a bust of him. Yeah. That's way cooler than the story behind the phrase American moment. Yeah, yeah, but I, I like our, our emblem. It's very so, cool. So it's like, more novel. Ours, it's, is, it's, ours is a little, you know. No, I say, uh, oh. honestly, your thing doesn't look much like any other Well, we logo were aware of that. In, we were like, yeah. we didn't, there's a sort of type, particularly, yeah. you know, yeah. so, and, and we didn't want to go too obscure. Some of our peer institutions mm-hmm. have like, they're a little too obscure in you know, the Lord <laughs> of the Rings kind of thing. So yeah, it's like, yeah. Um, well, Bridge, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Um, and thank you for everything that you do. I think you're one of the more responsible actors in American public life and that's that's important um, and uh, and you've put real skin in the game especially over the last year so thank you for everything thank you, you. it means a lot appreciate it great to be with you guys. that was a ton of fun I especially liked how you know bridge probably flipped nearly flipped over the table when I asked about walking and chewing gum at the same time that is one of the funniest shibboleths in DC is anytime you have any questions about our foreign policy it's just well we can walk and chew gum at the same time we it's literally like, can't <laughs> it's literally not possible yeah it's like walk chew gum juggle chainsaws while driving a motorcycle and if you disagree that we can't do that then you hate America that's basically the argument that the blob makes bridge is certainly not part of it I think he has put real skin in the game especially during uh, the, the Ukraine conflict um, we really enjoyed having him on he's a busy guy he went long for us even though he's probably gonna be late to his next meeting and and I think I know who his next meeting with is with, so I'm probably going to text them to apologize. But we make no apologies for making great content for you guys. I believe this is episode 72 of Moment of Truth. Well over 100 hours of content out there. Go back and listen to the backlog. There's creepy journos poking through it all the time. Uh, recently, there was a Daily Beast article that cited an episode from like three months ago. Um, if you're a creepy journo, stop listening, right? Yeah, go away, spooks. Um, but anyway, uh, we had a good time taping with Bridge. As always, we are blessed to be able to tape this show for you. Uh, I'm it's kind of amazing. I think we're, if we budget out 
same four episode a week schedule we're gonna we're gonna hit like episode 90 before the end of the year it's crazy to me that we've done that much um but it's our pleasure to do it and it's our pleasure that you guys listen uh, rate and review the podcast as always five star reviews only and uh hopefully uh all of us getting amped uh doesn't screw up the audio so that you know we blast out your eardrums but if we do we apologize for your bleeding eardrums as well um we'll see you guys next week Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey.